Peter wrote a letter to churches in the Roman Empire nearly 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Christianity had spread across the empire, but this new movement was not welcome. And why would it be? Rome was the strongest empire the world had ever seen, and their emperor was considered a god. Yet Christians, Christians declared Jesus' kingdom was the only one that would last forever, and that Jesus was the only one to be worshipped. Soon Christians were heavily persecuted for their message. They were imprisoned and tortured, even burned alive. The Roman Empire was where these believers lived, but it was certainly not their home. They were aliens, silenced, marginalized, outsiders, unwelcome in their own society. Peter's letter offered these brothers and sisters hope, but not through asserting their rights or retreating from their communities. Instead, Peter told believers to suffer with joy because that is exactly what Jesus had done. Peter told them to honor all people in a culture that favored the powerful. Peter told them to honor the emperor, even though he would persecute them mercilessly. He told them to suffer as Jesus suffered, to entrust themselves to their creator and to remember that this broken world was not their home. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, Peter wrote. Then he charged them, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have a home waiting for us an eternal home where we will glory in the pleasures of Christ forevermore. But millions and millions of others do not. This world is the best home they will ever have. So, Peter's charge to first century Christians rings true for us today. Stand firm. Stand firm with the light of Christ always before you. Fight the lion who prowls. Fight the lies that destroy. Fight with blessing and service. Fight in humility and grace. Fight with joy, hope, and love. Fight knowing Jesus has already won. Is still winning and will win forever and ever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome. Good to have you this morning. My name's Brandon. If you're wondering where the, who the Peppins were, that's me uh, and my wife. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Good to be with you guys. If you are new, especially welcome to you. If you're a college student, man, welcome. You've got a new year on your plate. Really good to have you. Uh, we're looking forward to getting to know you guys better. We're looking forward to being able to love and serve you guys. And so just really glad that you're here this morning. This morning we're uh, going to begin a brand new series. We're going to be uh, taking time to look through the books of First and Second Peter. And um, 
it was just so incredible in my studies uh, as I uh, prepared for our series to see that although these letters were written to a people 2,000 years ago, the truths that they needed to hear like, are the exact same things that we need to hear. And I was so encouraged and so challenged and like, man, I'm just so grateful for God's word that it would be so timeless and yet so timely. It is just stunning how incredible that is. And so uh, as you may have saw in the video, uh, the books of First and Second Peter, they're being written to Christians who are living in the Roman Empire and uh, specifically a group of Christians that's kind of living in what is kind of no, this region known as modern-day Turkey. And they were suffering because of their allegiance to Jesus. And you might be thinking, how does that relate to us? <laughs> it's not like we're actually being persecuted. It's not like we're wor- worrying that someone's about to walk through those doors and like arrest us or something like that. Well, it's a lot more relevant than you think because pretty much every commentator agrees that the type of suffering that these believers were facing, it wasn't this organized oppression. It wasn't this government-sponsored attacks, although that was coming. Instead, the, the people that Peter is writing to, what they're experiencing, one commentator writes it this way. He says, it's a sporadic, personal, and unorganized social ostracism. See, throughout the letters, what you'll see is that the people Peter's writing to, they suffered shame and discrimination. They suffered mockery and half-truths and lies being told them. They, they suffered rumors being spread about them and slander and harassment, even some kinds of verbal abuse, even some kinds of physical abuse. They suffered economic persecution. They were rejected. They were being pushed to the margins of their society. And what was happening is that their faith in Jesus was actually really changing the way that they lived. Their lives looked different because of their allegiance to Jesus. One pastor notes it this way. He says, those who had known them and enjoyed sinning with them prior to their conversion to Jesus considered this life change negatively. The drinking buddies that lost their wingmen, the boyfriends who got dumped by their living girlfriends who moved out in order to walk with Jesus. They weren't happy. They weren't pleased with what was going on in these Christians' lives because it was affecting them. And likewise, these Christians, their allegiance was not just to Jesus as Lord, but it was to Jesus as the king of everything. He was the true king of all things. And that flew in the face of everything their society said. Their society was based on the worship of many gods, chief among which was the human emperor Nero, who proclaimed himself to be a god and demanded that people worship him as such. And it's not that people were just deeply committed to many of these gods. It's not that they were hyper-spiritual, but it's rather that this religiosity was a part of the fabric of their society. It was just a part of the roots of their, of their culture. And what happened is when Christians would no longer engage in the parts of their society and the parts of their culture that worshipped other gods, they were ostracized. They were pushed to the margins. 
One commentator gives these examples. He says, various professions were held together by trade guilds, kind of like unions today, and they included meetings with religious rites and ceremonies that were dedicated to various gods and goddesses. And so when Christians would refuse to participate in the religious components of these ceremonies, they were seen as unprofessional. And so they'd often lose their jobs or be demoted or they'd just be seen as the weird ones. Furthermore, families in this culture were deeply held together by the traditions and the, the, the religious practices of kind of that society. It's not that it was deeply meaningful to them, but it was that it was a thread that kind of brought their society together. And so what happened is when Christians would refuse to participate in family meals or, or parties that were in order to celebrate other gods and other goddesses, their families would their families would ostracize them and they'd feel this deep pressure to participate even though they knew they couldn't. They were considered disrespectful to their families and they were considered rude even though that's not how their actions were perceived. See, today in our culture, there's things that happen like that all the time. There's this ongoing constant pressure to conform to certain social or political positions or be ostracized for absolute intolerance if you don't. There's this ongoing pressure to privatize your faith. You can believe anything you want. Just don't ever tell anyone about it. It's just your thing. Keep it to yourself. Or maybe you grew up in a religious background, but because of your understanding of the gospel, because you've come to really know and love and serve Jesus as king, there are aspects of that background that you can no longer participate in. And you feel pressure from your family to be a part of those traditions, to be a a part of those things. And you realize that you can't because it's not about Jesus. And maybe like the readers of Peter's letters, you are experiencing that kind of suffering, being pushed to the margins of your family or being pushed to the margins of your society because your life looks different or your allegiance to Jesus has changed not just your beliefs, but it's actually changed your actions and your values and your priorities. And the sense that you are being pushed to the margins in your family or in your society as a whole, and you're not alone. In fact, Christians in every generation have felt that way. Christians in every generation have felt marginalized and pushed to the, to the outsides of their society. They've been pushed to the, to the edges. That's because what these believers were experiencing and what Peter is writing in order to give them context, he's going to tell them that, be, that these believers, that the, the trials and the suffering that they're experiencing, that they are, as one pastor notes, they are the spiritual smelling salts of God. And they are meant to wake them up to the truth that they are not home yet. That you're not home yet your home is not here and maybe just maybe you forgot that this earth is not your home and this framework is the the foundation of all of his exhortations in these letters it's the foundation of all the encouragements that he gives this world is not your home you live here but it's not your home this world will fade this roman empire which feels like it will last forever This empire will fade. And you need your eyes set on a kingdom. You need your eyes set on a king. You need your eyes set on a home that is lasting, that will never fade. 
And the language that Peter uses to describe the people he's writing to, the language that he uses to help them understand this critical truth, he calls them exiles. He says, you're exiles, foreigners, strangers, aliens, sojourners. And he doesn't use this term to describe their nationality. He's not using it to describe their physical address. They're not actually physically displaced from their homes. What he wants them to see is that this is a spiritual reality that must be the lens that you see all of your life through. You are no longer citizens of Rome. Although they had grown up there all their lives, although their family had been in those cities for generations. Peter is saying, you're citizens of a different kingdom. This is not the kingdom. You have a different home. And these believers, they're experiencing that tension. The pressure that comes, that, the feeling that caught between these two worlds. And the, what's happening is the more and more their lives are being transformed by Jesus, the more and more their lives are being transformed by the gospel, the more they feel that foreignness, the more they feel that alienness, the more they feel like exiles, the more this world feels foreign to them. But although he calls them exiles, Peter wants them to know they are not abandoned. They are not refugees. This isn't punishment. They are not hopeless. And so Peter adds another word to describe who these people are. They're not just exiles. He says they are God's elect exiles. They're his elect. They're chosen by him. What I want us to see today as we begin our study in these incredibly timely books is that the hope that is needed, the hope that's needed to live as exiles is found in the electing grace of God. The hope that they needed to live 2,000 years ago as exiles in Rome, the hope that we need to live as exiles here in our city at our time, to live as citizens of God's kingdom, yet to be present and engaged in God's mission in this world as foreign ambassadors of his kingdom. It can only come from one thing. It can only come from God, from his electing grace, his choosing grace, his deliberate and precise grace that's been made in the person and the work of Jesus. And what you'll hear in the letter is that Peter knows it's really hard to be a foreigner. Peter knows it is really hard to live as an exile, to be on the outsides. What he knows is that in order to live in light of that truth, you are going to need an unshakable hope. You are going to need a confidence and a motivation that simply cannot come from you. And what Peter is going to proclaim over and over and in our passage this morning is that the hope that is needed to stand firm, the hope that is needed to live as citizens of God's kingdom, yet as exiles in this world, can only be found in the electing grace of God. So with that in mind, let's read our passage and then we'll pray. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the God's elect exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia, 
and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, with his grace and peace. Let it be yours in abundance. Grace be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, it can never spoil, it can never fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. In all this, you greatly rejoice knowing that now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, that it would result in the praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of this grace that you was to come, they searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of the Messiah and the glory that would follow and it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you and when they spoke of these things that they have that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the power of the spirit sent from heaven even angels long to look into these things let's pray god we're so grateful for you we're so grateful for your word god thank you for uh, the letters of First and Second Peter. God, we, we need these words just as much as the original readers did. And so, God, we ask that you might, by the power of your spirit, cause us, uh, cause the truths in these words to speak into our hearts in ways that we need to hear and respond to. God, and I just humbly ask that you would fill me with your spirit so that I have anything valuable to offer us. God, I just feel like my, my brain's in a lot of places. God, I need your spirit to fill me so that I might proclaim you. And so, God, we come this morning not depending on anything that I bring, but anything, but on everything that you bring. And so we look forward to the joy that will come as you are proclaimed. Pray these things in your good and gracious name, God. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, what I want to do in our passage is I want to show, I want to show us three ways that God's electing grace gives us the hope that we need to live as exiles. Number one, we have hope because we've been chosen. Verse one, Peter addresses them as God's elect exiles. Verse two, they have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Before time began, God chose them. It echoes the verses and the words in Ephesians chapter one. And this language about being chosen it comes up over and over and over and over again throughout Peter's letters and throughout all of the Bible. And verse 3 tells us what they've been chosen for. They've been chosen to be given new birth. They've been chosen to be given a new inheritance. That language, that's family language. That's, that's adoption language. 
God's chosen us to be adopted as his kids. Throughout the Bible, God describes the nature of our relationship with him like adopted children. And that's not by accident. It's not mere sentimentalism. No, it is a critical and fundamentally, a fundamental truth that shapes how we relate to him. I was really struck this week by how one pastor I listened to illustrated uh, this idea. He said, every adoption story is a little bit different, but no matter what the story is, it's going to be really important that one day those adopted children, that they know what their story is. It's something that will shape their understanding of who they are and what every adoptive parent wants their kids to know is that they are loved, they are wanted, they are chosen. But imagine this. Imagine imagine if uh, an adopted child told their story this way. If they said, you know, I, I grew up in a really bad situation. There just wasn't much hope for me at all. And I didn't have any parents. There's nobody taking care of me. And I heard this rumor that there's these letters scattered around the city. And and one day I finally found one of these letters. And, and it said, whoever finds this letter, we love you. And we want you to be our child. And we know that we're a long way from you. But if you can, um, we can't tell you enough how much we want you to be our child. So if you can just find a way to get to us, if you can find a way to get to our house, then we'll accept you. No questions asked. We can't, make, can't wait to meet you. And the child says, so I was so desperate. I knew that I had to go. And it was a crazy journey to finally get there. And, but once I finally arrived at the doorstep, there's a man who opened the door who I'd never met before. And I introduce and I hand the letter and I tell him who I am. And he smiles back and he says, welcome home. Welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. And the rest is history. Imagine how that story would break the heart of any adoptive parent. Besides the fact that it's like 99% totally untrue, the story makes their love for that child look weak and pathetic. Think about it. In that story, the parents didn't want that child in particular. Anyone would do. They would have been fine in that story if that child never came. And all they did was just make themselves available If you can just get here, we'd accept you. But that's not the story of adoptions. And you hear that story and you're like, "Eh." the real story about adoption sounds something like this. We saw you. We saw a picture of you or we, we met you. And before you were ever in our home, before we were ever legally our child, we loved you. And we thought about you all the time and we prayed for you all the time and we talked about you all the time. And we traveled back and forth and back and forth and we spent our savings and we raised more money so that we could get everything in order. And we waited and we waited and we waited until finally it was the time when we were able to go get you and bring you home with us. And you didn't do anything. And you couldn't have done anything even if you wanted to. And it didn't matter because it was our great joy to do it all. That's the story of adoptions. That's what makes them compelling. Is that it's the parent's love for this child in particular. Not just any child would do. It was this one. No matter what barrier, no matter what the cost, no matter what was in the way, they would overcome those things so they might be able to bring them home. That's why the story is so powerful. 
And that's the same story as the gospel. That is the story of the gospel. God tells us over and over throughout the Bible, and here in verse 3, you were not made his child because of anything you did. Nothing, absolutely nothing. But instead by his mercy. Verse 3, by his mercy you were given new birth. God did not want you thinking he just made a way for you generally. He didn't just make himself available. He didn't just scatter some letters hoping that you might find one in the world. He didn't just do most of the work hoping that you'd be able to figure it out and get to him. That's not what happened. And if you believe that, you do not heighten God's love. You do not exemplify God's love. You weaken it and you cheapen it. There are so many who have like, it's like just the idea that God would choose who he would save is just like this incomparable evil. How could God possibly choose who he would save? It seems terrible or horrific or it seems totally unfair. But if if that's not true, then God's love is weak and it is pathetic. It's unenticing and it is undesirable. And it certainly does not inspire the kind of life that you give dying to yourself and living for someone else. Oh, but if your salvation has nothing to do with what you have brought to the table, but has everything to do with what God has, if it has everything to do with him finding you, with him choosing you, with him loving you, not based on anything that you have done, in fact, in spite of everything that you have done, then it's the good news that you need it to be because it's his electing grace that gives you the hope that you need to live in this world as an exile. See, the first thing that Peter wants us to know about who we are, the first thing that God wants us to know about who we are, is not that we're exiles, but that we're his. This is God's elect exiles. He wants you to know you were chosen by him. You were loved by him. You were wanted by him. Not you in general, you in particular. He wants you to know that he is not indebted to you, that you did not just do something that would cause him to have to save you. You didn't connive him into it. You didn't bring anything to the table. He's not indebted to you. Instead, he wanted to love you. He chose to do it. It was his decision. And Peter wants them to know that God's grace towards them was not general. It was specific. They are his adopted children. They are dearly loved by him. They are chosen. They are cherished. They did not earn his love and they cannot lose it. They didn't earn his love and they cannot lose it. Which brings us to the second reason God's electing grace gives us hope. It gives us hope because we're being kept. We have been chosen. We have been saved and we are being kept. Verse 3 tells us that we've been chosen by God to give in a new birth and a new inheritance. And verse 5 tells us that this hope that we have because of God's unmerited, unearned, electing grace, it's unfailing. It's unwavering. It is absolutely lasting because it is God who is both keeping our inheritance for us and hear this, he is keeping you for your inheritance. 
He is keeping our inheritance for us and he is keeping us for our inheritance. If your inheritance was secure, but you were not, there's no hope in that, right? If your inheritance was sure, but you were not, then there's no hope in any of that. But instead, as one commentator writes, the wonder of our hope is that the same power of God that keeps our inheritance also keeps us. The passage says that we are being shielded until the great day when our salvation will be revealed. That word word shielded there, it means to be kept under guard. It is used of the idea of like protective custody. So God, as it were, he puts us under arrest, as it were. He is keeping us safe until the day where the truth about who we are becomes fully realized. And there are some churches who teach that you can lose your salvation. And there are innumerable problems with that that we do not have time to get into. But suffice it to say, if you can only lose your salvation if you were the one who earned it. You can only lose it if you're the one who gained it for yourself. And since you did not earn or merit or do anything to receive the grace that you have, you cannot mess it up. You need that. You need that truth. If you're going to live in the midst of exile, in the midst of trials. Instead, Peter says that God is keeping you. He is keeping you for the inheritance that he has waiting for you. And he's doing it by faith. This is critical. One commentator writes, why does God use faith as the instrument of his keeping power? He says this, because faith is not our achievement, but it's trust in God's achievement. Faith is not our achievement. Faith is trust in God's achievement on our behalf. God chose us. God adopted us. And it's by faith that we lay hold of the truth that is true. But just please hear me on this. The Bible is clear. Even your faith is not your own doing. It's not that God was just like, I'll do everything. If you just have enough faith, find me, have faith, then you're in. No. The Bible over and over says that God has revealed himself to you and that he has given you the ability to put your faith in him. God's not just the one who chose you. He enabled and empowers your faith in him. That is really good news. Because you have a hope that is sure. You have a hope that is confident in. You have a rock in to cling to in the storms of life, in the trials that you experience. Because you never have to wonder about your faith. You never have to wonder, was, was my faith strong enough? Did I have an, enough faith? You've heard, you've heard me say this before. It was never about the amount of faith you had. It has never been about the strength of the faith that you have. It has always been about the strength of your Savior. It, as Tim Keller notes, he says... It is not about the quality of your faith. It's the object of your faith that matters. You cannot lose your salvation because God cannot lose you. He is the adoptive father who will never let you go. You did not earn his love. You cannot mess it up. And the people that Peter is writing to, they really needed to hear that. It's crucial. It changes not just our understanding of suffering, but our approach to it altogether. God's electing grace is critical in the midst of trials because it's in the midst of trials that you feel that you've been woken up to your need for God. But it's really easy to feel that God is not aware of your need for him. 
You pray and you pray and you pray and you feel like your situation doesn't change or you feel like the circumstances don't change. You feel like God is not listening. Where is he? Where did he go? Why aren't you doing anything? Are you even still there? Am I still in your good graces? What was happening? But if your hope is rooted in nothing that you have done, but in everything that Jesus has done. If your hope is rooted in the truth that before time began, God foreknew you. If your hope is rooted in the truth that before the foundations of the world, God decided he chose that he would love you and adopt you, then no matter what happens, no matter the outcome of your situation, no matter what happens, if nothing ever changes, you are absolutely sure that the king of the universe knows you that he sees you, that he loves you, and that he is keeping for you an inheritance that is not here. It's an inheritance that cannot be affected by anything this world can do. It's a hope that cannot be changed by any opposition that we might face. Instead, there is a sure and foundational hope. And it's kept for you, and you are kept for it by God's electing grace, not your faith, not the quality of it, not the strength of it, but the one who has chose you is the one who has given you all the faith you need. And what that enables you to do is to see suffering, to see trials, not as punishment for sin, not as God's displeasure with you, but instead as a good father who is training his children, who is refining his kids so that they might So that they might know the good news of who he is and all that he's done. And that their hope and that their joy would be unshakable in any situation. You see, the trials that these believers were facing, they were light and they were momentary. But there were fierce trials coming. They needed to know that this world was not their home. They needed to know that they were chosen, that they were God's elect exiles, that they were known, they were seen by him. They needed to know that they were being kept by him, that they couldn't lose their inheritance. They couldn't lose the hope that they had been given. In verse 8, Peter commends his readers for their faith in Christ. And unlike Peter, they'd never met Jesus. They had never seen him. But he says, even though you've never seen him, you know him. And he says, but one day, he says, one day you will. One day Jesus will be revealed to you. One day their faith would become sight. One day Jesus would be revealed in all of his glory. One day they would no longer be exiles in a foreign land. Instead, they'd be children in the home of their father. And Peter says, you've been chosen and you've been kept. You're being kept until the end. You're being kept for the final salvation that awaits you. And this is the third point. We have hope because we will be saved completely in the end. This world is not our home. We are exiles here, but you are not exiles in your true Verse 9, Peter says, you are receiving the end result of your salvation, the salvation of your soul. To be receiving it means that you have not gotten it yet. 
It's not fully yours yet. God's kingdom is an already but not yet kind of kingdom. You've heard me compare it this way before. It's the difference between V-Day and D-Day in World War II. On D-Day, the victory was won. The truth about the victory that would be the end of World War II, it was finished, it was done. As soon as the Allies completed that assault, there was no hope. It was done. The victory had been won. But V-Day would be almost a year later, and V-Day was the day that that, the, the experience of that victory was made true into the reality of the world. God's electing grace, his, uh, for us, his hope, the hope that we have to live in that time in between, to live in the midst of the, that time between D-Day and V-Day, to live in the between of those two worlds, can only come from him because we know that the victory is sure. We are experiencing some of it now, but one day we'll experience it fully. No more sin, no more suffering, no more opposition, just Jesus, just being with him. And Peter says, the unshakable and sure foundation of God's electing grace that gives you hope for that day, it's bringing you joy now. As one commentator notes, joy is not reserved only for the future when Jesus will be clearly seen in all of his glory, but even now his followers love him and they believe in him and they rejoice, as verse uh, 7 or 8 says, with an inexpressible joy in the end result of their eternal home, knowing it's the salvation of their souls. One day, God will bring us home to be with him, and that is giving them great joy now. Because Peter says there is nothing that can stop it. Jesus' work is finished and it's done. He has, it is past, it is present, and it is absolutely future. It is sure and unshakable because it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with what Jesus has done. It allows you to have great joy in the midst of exile, to have great joy in the midst of suffering because the unwavering hope we have is the great news of God's electing grace. So how does that actually change the way that we live? The hope that we have comes from God's work on our behalf, not something we bring to the table from his electing grace. How does it change us? Well, it gives us great confidence because we know who we are. You never have to wonder, what is my standing with God? God says, I've given you a status. I've given you an identity and it does not change. You're mine. You're my children. I chose you. I love you. And it gives you great sureness and hope knowing that it is not you who keeps yourself until the end, but it's God who is keeping you for himself. And lastly, it gives you great confidence in knowing the inheritance that is waiting for you. You will be saved in the end. And it has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with him. That confidence, that sureness, it changes the way that you live now. The end always determines the path. It enables you to go through trials with joy because there's purpose. It's God doing it for your good and for his glory. And there's an end. This world is the worst it will ever, ever get. And Jesus has prepared a home for you that is beyond compare. But that kind of confidence, it also enables you to be present and engaged in the mission of God here and now. 
which is at the heart of Peter's letter. As one commentator writes, Peter is addressing transients and aliens, but they are also ambassadors. They reject conformity to the city, but they accept responsibility, living as law-abiding citizens, honoring their rulers and their fellow residents. And by becoming God's people, they join those like Peter and like Jesus who had gone before them, who had went outside the camp to bring those in. And we feel like exiles here, but your children in your true home. But tragically, there are those who feel at home here. And their comfort here reveals that they are foreigners in the eternal home. And so we live as God's elect exiles on his mission, calling others to the true home that waits them, the true home that God has prepared for them, calling others to be exiles now so that they might be children of God forever. And I just want to ask you, are you longing for that home? Is, is that the home that you long for? Do you long to be with Jesus? I do. Man, there are some days, I'll be honest with you, man, there are some days I pray, Jesus, come quick or take me now. Because <laughs> it is hard to live as an exile in this world. But like the Apostle Paul, my longing to be with Jesus, it fuels, it fuels my passion for others to be with him as well. Man, everyone has those days, right? And you just say, Jesus, I'm ready. <laughs> it would just be so much better if you would just come. And then I realize that there are huge numbers of people in our city that if Jesus comes, they're not going home to be with him. And so I say, Jesus, not yet. The invitation is not to long for your eternal home and forget where you are. The invitation is to long for your eternal home and let that change everything about the way you live now. I scroll through my social media feeds and often I feel like a stranger in this world. And what I do so often is I'm tempted just to hide all of it. To hide the stuff I disagree with. Hide the stuff that scares me. To hide the stuff that is opposed to Jesus and his gospel. But I need to choose not to do that. Because it is the smelling salts that wake me up. That remind me, this is not my home. And it reminds me that Jesus is needed by the people in my city. He's needed by my extended family. He's needed by my friends. 
And so the, the letter that First Peter writes is really good news. Because Peter says there's hope to live in the midst of exile. And that it's not just sadness and it's not just fighting, but there's great joy in it. And I fail at this all the time. I mess up at living as an exile all the time, and it's hard. And I am so grateful, not just for the words of these letters, which call me back to the truth, but for the one who God used to write them. You see, the Apostle Peter, he wrote these letters at the very end of his life. Within just a few years, he would be crucified. He'd be martyred at the order of Emperor Nero because he stood firm. But that wasn't always the case with Peter. If there was anyone who knew firsthand the difficulties of standing firm in the midst of trials, it was Peter. And when push came to shove three times, he denied that he even knew Jesus. And I am so thankful that God used Peter to write this letter. As one pastor notes, in 1 Peter we see a normal disciple, someone who really loves Jesus and yet someone who really sins. Someone with whom God is patient as he grows and matures through his sin to love Jesus and sin less. His imperfections are endearing and his progress is encouraging. You see, the same man that chose to deny he even knew Jesus three times, 30 years later would be crucified because he refused to do. And what changed him was the gospel. It was Jesus' life. It was Jesus' death. And it was his resurrection which made Peter's hope sure because God's electing grace was sure and finished and done. And Peter is writing to these people and he wants them to know that they're chosen. He wants them to know that they are loved. He wants them to know that they are God's adopted kids. And Peter needed to know that just as much as they did. Just as much as we do. In a few moments, we're going to take communion. And communion is a reminder for us about the gospel. It's a reminder of God's grace made known to us in Jesus. And the bread, it reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us as he lived the life we couldn't live. And the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he died the death that we should have died in our place. And the Bible's clear. Communion does not make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't take your status or your standing with him. First Corinthians 11, other places. Instead, for those who have by faith trusted in Jesus, in his work on our behalf, his life lived for us, his death died in our place, then, the, then communion is a celebration and is a remembering of the gospel. It's a remembering of that good news. And the bread and the juice, they're in the back, and you just take the bread and you dip it in the juice. And as we sing and as we worship and remember the gospel together, if you've put your trust in Jesus, then whenever you're ready, go back. Take communion. Do it as a celebration, as a remembering of God's grace made known to you. Of your allegiance to him as king. But if you've not yet put your trust in him to save you, I need you to hear this. You are welcome here. You are so welcome. In fact, this church was begun so that you might be here. I'm so grateful that you would. But if you've not yet put your trust in Jesus, I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communion. It would just be a religious practice. And we don't just want you to take uh, communion. We want you to be saved by Jesus. You don't need to be a member of this church to take communion here. You just need to belong to Jesus. So let's pray as we close and as we celebrate.
God, we are so thankful for you. We are so thankful for all that you have done. And so we come, God, with grateful hearts to uh, sing and to worship and to celebrate and to cherish you, God, for all that you've done on our behalf. God, and I'm so thankful that uh, my salvation has nothing to do with me but has everything to do with you. It's the good news that gives me hope to love and follow you in the midst of all situations. So God, we come with grateful hearts to sing and to worship and to celebrate that grace. We pray these things in your good name. Amen.